The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you'd open, please, to Galatians chapter 3, and this evening we're going to look again at verses 23 through 29, and we're following here Paul's argument about uh, our release from the condemnation of the law by our faith in Jesus Christ. As we've studied this text, we've, we've noted the, the near insanity of trying to use the law as a means by which we can be justified with God. The law just puts us into a hopeless position. And yet, if you, if you look across the spectrum of the world's religions, all of them have as their basis a works type of salvation. And false Christianity is infected with it. And uh, it really goes back 20 centuries to the time that we're talking about here in Galatians, where, as the Apostle Paul writes to these people. And, and if you look at the history of Christianity, those that favored uh, the law as a means of justification actually became the predominant group of those who called themselves Christians. And, and really, it showed up most notably and in the formation of this monstrosity that we know today as the Roman Catholic Church. But those that stuck to the apostles' teachings on justification by faith were forced into hiding, and because the Lord uh, promised to preserve his church, uh, the church kept on, even in hiding, while persecuted, kept on preaching the truth that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, And, and the Lord just preserved the church, and people kept preaching the truth, and those churches are still preserved today in those that are of like faith and order to the Berean Baptist Church. But still in the majority of those that claim the Christian faith, there is a works uh, justification that's exemplified in things like the keeping of sacraments for salvation. And although we're not doing as the Apostle Paul was doing here in the book of Galatians, arguing about whether circumcision is necessary for salvation. Yet we still are arguing on the very same principles that that he did in in his time. Uh, the, The issue is still justification by faith alone. And those who followed the the errors of the Galatian people, they repudiated the apostles' doctrine, and they still do today. And so as we tackle these doctrinal discussions that we find here in the book of Galatians, we're not dealing with some outdated argument. This is not something that was settled a long time ago, and nobody worries about it any longer. Martin Luther, when he challenged the Roman Catholic Church on this, the the whole thing was just as fresh as the day the Apostle Paul spoke about it in the book of Galatians. And so we're still dealing with the very same issues. We use the very same arguments that he did to refute the idea that people have that you can be justified by the law. Now today, though, most people are stuck in the default position, which we just simply call the devil's religion. They're stuck in the default position since uh, Satan planted the seed in Adam's mind that somehow he could be right with God by covering himself up, just making some kind of amends for what he'd done wrong. Uh, People have been stuck with that ever since, and we know by reading the Word of God it's going to go on that way, it'll stay that way until Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. 
You may not be somebody that involves yourself with religious discussions with the people at work, but if there's somebody next to you that you know is not saved, you know exactly, or I can tell you if you don't, exactly what they think about getting to heaven. They think they're going. And they think the reason they're going is because they're good enough or they're going to do something good enough or there's some way they can earn their, their way there. And that, as I just said a moment ago, is the default position. That is the devil's religion. So if they're not saved, they're in Satan's religion and they're thinking they're good enough. So every time that we read the book of Galatians, we're we're reading about current events. This isn't ancient stuff that doesn't matter. You need to care about this because you're going to face it with almost every single person that you come in contact with when you try to give them the gospel of Christ. This is going to be their fallback position that they think they're good enough in order to get to heaven. Now we look here in our text in Galatians chapter 3. We'll start reading at verse 22. Paul says, But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster." For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise." Now, we notice there in verse number 23 that Paul says, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Now, we talked about that text last week, and as we approached it, the first point of discussion that we had about this is that we were, without Christ, under the bondage of the law. Now, whenever we see faith in the Bible, sometimes it means our personal faith that we have in Christ. Sometimes it means the full complement of the faith, encompassing all of Christian doctrine. That's the way that Jude uses it when he talks about the faith in the letter that he wrote. But in this case, when Paul uses the word faith, he's actually making it synonymous with Christ. So that he's saying here, but before Christ came, we were kept under the law. Well, there are a couple of ways that we can look at that. One application would be to Jewish believers. And by this, Paul would mean that before Christ came, that the Jewish people were bound up in the ceremonial laws and those laws that they kept. Uh, They were required to keep them, even though their sins had been forgiven because of their faith in the Christ that was coming. They had to go through all of these ceremonies and all the sacrifices that they made, the feasts that they went through. And they did that on a regular basis. The ceremonies were all a part of the law and they had a view towards the time that Christ would come and then those ceremonies would be done away with. The ceremonies couldn't take away any of their sins. If they could, the Jews never would have actually looked for Jesus because they wouldn't have needed him. So when Christ came, he was the perfect antitype of all of these ceremonies and so when he came, they were no longer needed. The Jews were released from that requirement of keeping all of those, which was the same as what Paul is saying here is being freed from the bondage of the law. Now, what Paul does then is to apply that same reasoning to circumcision. 
Since Christ has fulfilled the law, circumcision is no longer necessary. Now, as you know, uh, circumcision is actually the precipitator to the whole argument that we have in the book of Galatians. We learned that studying chapter 2, and and also we we find that that was alluded to uh, in in Acts chapter 15, the same types of things were being talked about there, where it says in Acts, and certain men which which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And so Paul's argument in Galatians is why that circumcision is no longer necessary. And again, that's because Christ fulfilled the demands of the Mosaic law. And I I think that's an argument that needs to be noted because as far as the Jews are concerned, that argument would be convincing. But if we take this whole section that we're dealing with here, Galatians 3, 23 through 29, we have to believe that what Paul has done is widen the argument that not only is he talking about Jews, but Gentiles as well. So the we that we find in verse 23 is the inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles. And I think that's proved by verses 26 through 29. And so Paul is saying that there is a sense in which the law of God is more than the Mosaic law. That the law includes all the laws that are written on the human heart. And of course, those became later codified in the laws that were given to Moses, but all the world doesn't know the law of Moses. The Gentiles didn't know that law, but they were still in bondage to the law, in bondage to the laws that are written on the heart. Now, he tells us, and we understand by reading Scripture, that we were under the curse of the law, and we were under the bondage of the law, and naturally we're going to think that's a bad thing. The law must be a bad thing. Well, it turns out the law is not actually a bad thing because the law is what God used to reveal our sinfulness. The law is what God uses to show that there is no way that we can possibly help ourselves. So Paul says that we were shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. And there he's talking again about the faith of Christ. So we're held under the law until the time that Christ came to set us free from the law. And the insane position is that we would want to stay under the law, which can never help us. And yet that's where the vast majority of Christianity is. They prefer the bondage of the law to freedom in Christ. So Paul goes on and he says that the law served a different purpose than what most people think, that the law wasn't given to save us, but he says it was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And without even going into any kind of explanation of verse number 24, there's enough in that to tear down the entire hierarchy of Roman Catholicism and and just grind their position into the dust. And so you think, well, how did Roman Catholicism or how do they escape the conclusion that Paul makes here? I mean, how can something so clearly taught against by the apostle become their position? How can they even claim with that position they could be descended from the apostles? Well, they do have a method, and their method is to pit Scripture against Scripture. And so they go to James and they say, well, James is the one who explains Paul, and he says that we're also justified by our works. But Paul's argument is clear. And we, we would have to see that James must have some other meaning by what he said than what the, the twist that the Roman Catholics put on it. And we do find that James has another way of looking at justification. 
He's looking at good works as the proof of our justification, the evidence of it, not the way that we are actually justified. So Paul and James, uh, if they had a different opinion about this, they would be in such conflict that we would have to have two Bibles. We would need a New Testament of Paul and a New Testament of James. But we know they're not in conflict. If there is a conflict, we think the conflict is in our mind. Because the, whole, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, inspired both of them to write what they wrote. Both of them were directed by the Holy Spirit. So something is wrong with interpretation of Scripture if you find a conflict between the two. Well, we see then here that Paul goes on to explain himself when he says this law is a schoolmaster. This is what it's for. It brings us to Christ. It's not the thing that saves us. It's the thing that brings us to Christ. Now, as we looked at that last week, I told you that schoolmaster is actually an unfortunate translation. And that's because it doesn't really give us the full effect of the original word that Paul used. In fact, there is no perfect word in the English language that we can use. So we really don't fault the King James translators too much. But schoolmaster, just that word implies that the law is nothing more than a school marm that just directs us to Christ. But the original word meant much more than that. The word that we have here is the word pedagogos. And, and it's a term that's used for a trusted slave who is in charge of a child. And it wasn't just his job to get that child to school, but he was also a slave that ruled the child. He was the constant companion of the child. He was the disciplinarian. He taught him morals and ethics. And he was with that child every waking moment. Oftentimes, the, the pedagogus was a cruel slave, and the child wanted nothing more than to get free from him, to get rid of the ball and chain. But the slave was necessary because he was for the child's welfare, and so the parents expected that at the proper time, the child had received the kind of training that he should get, and then he would be ready to be handed over to take his rightful position in the family. Now, that leads us to the next part of our discussion. Number two is the freedom of faith. Paul goes on to say in verse 25, But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now, once again, we're talking about faith. That's the same as Christ. When Christ came into our heart, we are no longer under the pedagogos. We're no longer under the law. The law can't put any constraints on us because Christ sets us free from the law. And the law did its job well. We were under its custodial care. It made it realize our sinfulness and our helplessness. And it pointed us towards the only one that could help us. Now, if we take the meaning here that Paul is speaking primarily to the Jews, then the ceremonial laws kept the Jews headed in the right direction until the Lamb of God came. Until the the one who was the sacrifice for sins came, the Jews were headed in the right direction to, to accept him, to receive him when he came. And when he came, they were no longer under the law. But if we look at it in the wider application, Paul is saying to Jews and Gentiles alike that the law has done its job. And it's done a job not just talking about the nation of Israel, but it's done the job for the personal individual. The law does its job for you. It leads you to the realization that you are a sinner, that you do need Christ. It brings you to the foot of the cross, the only place that you can ever be set free from your sins. So the wider application 
gets demonstrated in many different ways in Scripture. And one of those is with the veil of the temple that was torn in two at the crucifixion. In Mark 15, it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. Now, the rending of the veil has to do with the, break, the, the, the changing, the, the opening up of the law and the way to get into, to see, to, to be in the presence of, of God and in the presence of Christ. W.A. Criswell says, The tearing of the veil refers to the heavy curtain which separated the holy place from the most holy place. The curtain barred the way to the presence of God, and the law allowed only the high priest to enter, and then on only one day each year. The tearing of the veil from top to bottom, indicating that God did the tearing, was symbolic of the open access that all men have to God through the death of Christ. No longer is the priesthood or an annual sacrifice necessary. Christ is both the eternal sacrifice and the eternal high priest. So the law has done its job. It's brought us to Christ, whereby faith we find freedom in him. So Paul's point is, why would anybody ever want to be back under the bondage of the law? We have the freedom of faith. And so why do we want to put anything to our, in our religion or take anything to our religion that actually takes freedom away? And this is what Paul is telling them. If you, if you take circumcision and make that a part of your justification, then you've taken your freedom away that you have in Christ. And that's why we don't want the, the sacraments of Roman Catholicism because not, that's nothing but shackles and the rites and the rituals are nothing but a mess that binds us and chains us. Now we notice that Paul goes on and, and, he, and he shows a wonderful benefit that accrues by faith. Now in last week's message I, I said that as we read these scriptures you find two classifications of people and only two. That it's possible for every ethnic difference to be dissolved. It's possible for every national conflict to be resolved. It's possible for every social distinction to disappear. And we'll see that in in the text here a little bit later on. Not tonight, but we'll talk about it uh, at another time. So how is that possible? Well, it's possible by faith in Christ. And we look and we see how prominent that Christ is in these scriptures. In verse 24, it's bring us unto Christ. Verse 26, by faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 27, baptized into Christ. In verse 28, all one in Christ. In verse 29, if he be Christ. So the emphasis is on Christ, not the shadows, not the types and the figures. It's Christ himself. Circumcision is a figure. Circumcision is just pointing the direction. It's a sign. It's not the real thing. We find the real thing in Jesus Christ. And so there's no room for anything but him. He's the one that changes everything. We don't change anything. We can't do anything. So we, we never put anything in the place of Christ because he's the only one that fills the righteous demands of the law. So what Christ does, he changes us from people that are forced into obedience of the law to people who willingly are obedient to God's law because of the love of the Father. Now let's see what he says in verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there is a statement that we find packed with doctrinal truth. So we're just going to open it up a little bit tonight as we finish this part of the message. So look at this. Notice this. 
all are sons by faith. All are the children of God by faith. Now often, you'll notice, more often than not, uh, in, in these kinds of discussions, that the Bible uses the term sons. That's the predominant term, and that refers to where we are in Christ, in God's family, positionally. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But I want you to notice here that there is a distinction made between people based on the qualification of faith, that we become the children of God by faith. And so that's a very clear statement that only those who have their faith in Jesus Christ are actually the children of God. Now, of course, the world's religion has a much different view of that. Uh, The inner faith dialogue says that we're all the children of God really doesn't matter what you think about Christ. Everybody's created equal, and they take that to mean spiritually equal as well as endowed by God with certain inalienable rights. Our government doesn't have any trouble in having an interfaith service in the National Cathedral because everybody's a child of God. Of course you would do that. But that's not the teaching of Scripture because the Word says the only way that you can become a child of God is by faith. In fact, it's impossible to read and believe the Bible without being impressed with that just over and over again. You can't be a child of God except by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God said that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so either those who are the seed of the serpent are also children of God... Or else Paul is wrong by what he says in Galatians 3.26. Now, we don't really have to decipher Paul's meaning because we don't even have to talk to the Apostle Paul about it. He's got a great argument here. You don't have to talk to Paul. Just go to Jesus. Just ask him, what does he think about it? And you know the verse, John 8.44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. And he's speaking to these evil Pharisees. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now what that does, you only need one verse of scripture to blow the universal fatherhood of God completely out the window. There are some people who are Satan's children. And I know it's not popular doctrine. And we're not often as clear about it as Jesus was. I doubt very seriously that you're going to begin your next gospel presentation with, you need to be saved because you are Satan's spawn. Probably won't start it that way. And yet the scriptures are very clear that all without faith in Christ are in Satan's kingdom. They're his children. And the only way that they can become the children of God is be delivered out of Satan's kingdom into the light. In verse 29 of that chapter, Jesus said, If ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed. And the Jews replied in verse 39, They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If Abraham, or if ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. And then in verse 47 he says, He that is of God heareth God's word. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are what? Not of God. Not everybody is God's child. See, there, there isn't any way that you can squeeze out of Scripture that God is the Father of all. And I heard that statement in a home just recently. A person I was speaking to says, we're all the children of God. 
We're all going to find our way to God some way. And I just asked, then what about John 8, 44, when Jesus said those people were children of the devil? Well, the only way to come become a child of God, as I said, is by faith. And this is one of those times when Christianity declares its exclusivity. You know, people are always talking about how tolerant that Jesus was. And people always have the opinion that Christianity is a tolerant religion. No, Christianity is not tolerant. Christianity is very intolerant because it claims to be exclusively the way to God. Now, let me go back to this thought that connects us with the general flow of the text we have. That Paul says that we are no longer under the pedagogos. And, and I'm not going to, don't really want to get into an argument with the King James translators, but the word for children in verse 26 is actually sons. The word is actually sons. And that's because sons rightly ties in with the previous picture that Paul has given of the pedagogos. Now we're talking about, he's talking to people that are in Rome, they're Roman citizens, and, and primarily. The, 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 in the families, the sons were the heirs in the Roman household. And that's not a strange thing because it was also the same with the Jews. The right of primogenitor goes to the eldest son. Although there is a provision, there was a provision in the Jewish law that if there were, were no sons, then you could have a female who inherited uh, the father's estate. That's possible. But that's an anomaly. That's the normal, not the normal thing. So a firstborn female does not have the rights of a firstborn male. So what Paul is doing here, he sticks with the rights of sons to give us the picture of where we are in God's family. The picture is the son and the pedagogos. And that's the terminology that we find used throughout Scripture. In John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Romans 8.14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Philippians 2.15, That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom he shine as lights in the world. In 1 John 3, 1 and 2, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And if you look in Galatians 4, 5, just right after where we are here, you see adoption of sons. In verse 6, you see because ye are sons. In verse 7, it says no more a servant but a son. And so he sticks with the word son because that fits the example that he's just used. Now, ladies, you can take heart because there's a verse for you too. In 2 Corinthians 6, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So you can package that verse up, send it to the women livers who say that Paul was a woman hater, because he used that verse too. So why does the Bible keep calling us sons of God? Well, the reason is that when we become the children of God, we're heirs to everything that God has promised, and those things belong to who? 
the Son of God. And the reason that we have anything at all is because of him and because we are in him. He's the one that has all the rights and privileges. And so because we are in him, we're recognized as receiving the rights and privileges that are his. Now, do you see why that as Paul is going through this section that Jesus is so prominent? Everything that we receive is because of him. We receive the rights of sonship. And so the word here is not children, it's sons, because that stresses the position in the family of God. Now, going back to the pedagogos, it was his job to get the child ready for a ceremony. We're talking about ceremonies just a moment ago, but it was his job to get the child ready for a ceremony that moved the child from childhood to manhood. And that transition was symbolized by the changing of garments. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought, changing garments, because I'm going to come back in just a minute. But the transition is symbolized by a change of garments. Now, if we can show this up on the screen, there, there are two pictures here of different garments. On the left, you have the toga pretexta. On the right, you have the toga virilis. This is what S. Lewis Johnson says. The little child had been wearing the toga pretexta, or the crimson-bordered toga, which marked him out as a child. In an elaborate little ceremony before the members of the family, the toga pretexta would be taken off and the toga virilis, from which we get the English word virility, a viral man, the toga virilis would be placed upon him and he would pass from his immaturity into maturity, putting aside the crimson-bordered toga for the white toga of the adult Roman. And in the ceremony, which was an elaborate ceremony in which all of the family was gathered there, he would be at that point recognized as a son in the family and therefore able to enter into the councils of the men in the family who determine the future of the family and its life in the community. So Paul must have had that ceremony in mind. And the Galatians, as he says this, they can visualize the illustration that he gives and they make the connection. Now, all of that's important because there is a change that takes place that the child is released from his pedagogos. And so the pedagogos prepares the child to become a son with all the rights and privileges. And that's what the law does to us. It keeps us under tight control until all things necessary have been done. It prepares us for faith in Christ where there is a change from unrecognized status with no rights to recognize status with full rights and privileges as a son of God. Now notice the language in verse 27, and, and really this is what, in my mind, seals the deal about the connection to the ceremony. Paul says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We're going to talk about this verse in connection with baptism next time. So for now, notice the last part of the verse. Those that have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's a very interesting phrase. It actually means to put on Christ as a garment. In Romans 13, 14, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And the Greek word that's used there for put on means to clothe. It means like putting on a robe. It's like a soldier puts on a uniform. And those connections are just too striking to be coincidental. So Paul is likely referring to that ceremony that we just talked about 
that is a changing of clothes. Now, interestingly, Paul says in Colossians 3, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. Put off and put on. And those are forms of the same word that mean taking off a garment and putting on another one. And then you notice verse 11 that I just read in Colossians, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. And we have the very same thought in our text, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And both of those statements are preceded by the same thought of changing garments. See, the law brings us to that position. And when we talk about being able to get rid of all the differences between all of us, It's going to happen because of a change that takes place in us. Now, this might not mean very much to you, but to me, this is why Bible study is so interesting. Because when you take a little bit of time to look a little bit deeper into the text, there's all kinds of imagery that you don't see just by glancing at it. And and these are very important things. So we're going to end with that tonight. And, And just remember that the law is harsh. The law beats us to death. That is, if we do the wrong thing with it. We don't want to use the law for the wrong thing. We don't want to be like the Roman Catholics because when you bring the law into your system of a way to be right with God, then you end up with no respect for the law and you end up with no exercise of real faith. So what happens to them? The law kills them till they come to the place where they have no assurance of salvation. And, they, and they, they say and they teach that people who say that you can have assurance of salvation, you're cursed. Why? Because to them, the law is a gamble. It's always staying one step ahead of your sins with the penance that you do. And you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of that. And that's why you never have any assurance of eternal life. Well, here's what I'm thankful for. I'm justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm confident that he's done everything that needed to be done. I don't have to worry about keeping one foot out of the grave or one step ahead of the law or anything else. I depend on Jesus Christ. So the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the study that we've had tonight, and we thank you for the pictures that we find in, in Scripture, in the words, that, in the language that's used, and how that just points us right to the Savior, Jesus Christ, that causes us to take all confidence away from self and to place it all in the one who's done all for us. We thank you for him. Bless our people. We thank you so much and just just everyone who's come out to hear your word taught. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.